Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Back in ancient times, you knew that things then weren't that easy. So many different tribes, so many different ways of writing. So who put the alphabet in alphabetical order? I wonder who put the alphabet in alphabetical order? one of Irving Berlin's lesser-known songs. No, that's actually by <laughs> They Might Be Giants. So we're going to talk about alphabetical order today. And and this is one of these shows that like I just sort of instantly knew how, knew how to do weeks ago and no longer know how to do. It's just a lot more complicated than I thought. So I was reading this um, review in the New York Times Sunday Book Review of a book called A Place for Everything, The Curious History of Alphabetical Order. And by Judith Flanders. And I thought, well, that's exactly the kind of show that we would do. And so I said to senior producer Betsy Kaplan, we have to do this show. And then I pretty sure I said, and we should have Nicholson Baker on with her because he'd be great. And he would like, I don't exactly know what I thought Nicholson was going to do, but like, I knew he'd be great. And then we should, we, I said, we should have Peter Sokolowski or one of the people who's on his podcast. He's got a new podcast. And so that's what we're doing. Now, the question is, do I actually know how to do this show? Uh, but first of all, let me tell you more about the uh, uh, guests here. Judith Flanders is a social historian and senior research fellow at the University of Buckingham. As I said, her new book is A Place for Everything, The Curious History of Alphabetical Order. Nicholson Baker is a novelist and essayist. He's the author of 17 books. Many of them are quite short, though, so there's really no reason not to read all of them, including the most recently baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of, of Information Act. He's currently the Jennifer Jarling Forez Writer-in-Residence in Creative Writing. I'm not saying that title very well at Colby College. Peter Sokolowski is with us. Uh, he is a lexicographer uh, by day, uh, editor-at-large at, at Merriam-Webster, uh, and co-host of the podcast Word Matters. That's the thing I was talking about. That's his sort of Apollonian order-seeking day life. By night, he's a jazz musician and a public radio jazz host at NEPR. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that's much more Dionysian and chaos-seeking. Uh, at least that's my interpretation of Peter's life. Uh, all right, so they're all here. Um, and before I have Judith Flanders get, her, get us going... Let's point out that, yes, you know, alphabetization, you may not think that it's that sexy a topic, but it comes up on the big screen. Uh, here's a little clip from Vampire's Kiss, a 1988 film directed by Robert Bierman and starring Nicolas Cage. Sometimes somebody puts a document in the wrong file and then it's misfiled. And it makes it much harder to find. Uh, who? Who? What do you mean, who? I don't know who exactly. You don't? No, I don't. Whoever filed it in the first place, but for God's sakes, Peter, I am not telling you one single thing you don't already know. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, 
I think only Nicolas Cage could get that upset about an alphabetical order. But yes, you know, the uh, famous writing coach and writing uh, teacher and writer about writing William Zinser used to collect um, badly worded corporate memos. And one of them asked for a list of all employees broken down by sex. And although many of us do at times feel broken down by sex, most lists of employees are in fact in alphabetical order because that's the easiest way to do it. Nicholas Cage is right. But Judith Flanders, first of all, welcome to our show. And second of all, um, maybe just sort of give us a sense of, from your book, it's clear that we don't, there wasn't exactly one eureka moment uh, where all of Western civilization suddenly decided to put things in alphabetical order. But what can you tell us uh, about the transition from other things to that? Maybe start with the other things. There were other ways of putting things in, in order, most of them based on the kinds of hierarchies, hierarchies that we're less comfortable with these days. Well, the interesting part about organization, and I realize that's the nerdiest sentence I've ever begun. <laughs> um, the interesting part about organization is that we still use other systems together with alphabetical order. They're just invisible. So, for example, um, say the electoral register, mm -hmm. the voter registration. Um, that is not purely alphabetical order. It is, um, in its first sorting order, it's geographical. Each area um, is the first sorting system and then alphabetical. And then actually, if you think about it, chronological, because no one under 18 is on it. Um, a school register, a class registers are chronological first because they're sorted by class before they're sorted by um alphabet. So it's age. If you go into a bookstore, things are separated fiction, nonfiction, and so on. So while we think everything is purely alphabetical, actually a lot of systems are all in use at the same time. Well, that's an excellent point. But one of the points that you make in the book is, you know, at times things that the, the alphabetical order seemed fairer than other things. I mean, since we're doing this show here in Connecticut, yeah. maybe you can mention that these uh, uh, um, very much esteemed institutions, Harvard and Yale, had a way of listing <laughs> members of their uh, of their student body that did not begin with A and end with Z. How, how were they listed? Indeed. I mean, there were many other um, systems and hierarchy, social structure was one for a very long time in colonial New England altogether. Um, church seating was organized by family status. The more important family sat at the front, the peon sat at the back. Um, Harvard and Yale, when they were both colleges before they became universities, um, right through the 18th century, organized their student lists by the status of the students' families. So they did seating by um, how important your family was. And I wouldn't like to say that admissions perhaps still is on the status of families, but we must consider this. Um, so hierarchy was um, really important. The shift to alphabetical order 
comes precisely from the problems you can see with hierarchy or age or status, which is that the searcher, the person who is trying to look things up, needs to know how important the family is or which part of Connecticut they live in or how old somebody is. Whereas with alphabetical order, all you need to know is this person's name begins with A or this person's name begins with W. Right. Although there are still going to be arguments, and there are arguments today, for example, within academia, where it is standard uh, for scientific research and other kinds of academic research for the collaborators sometimes to be listed in alphabetical order. I think there have even been studies indicating that people whose names begin with Z are 25% or something less likely to get tenure than people whose names begin with A, because they're like always the and, last name read. And, so. and indeed, on scientific papers, um, they use status as an organizing principle for the author's names. So you will see that the lead researcher is always the first person and the least important person on the team is the last person when the list of authors comes up. All right. So I, I want to know, Peter Sokolowski, first of all, I, I should just say that every time I go on the Merriam-Webster website, I think I should just go on the Merriam-Webster website every day. Why don't I do this? Because there's always like exciting things going on. And this has nothing to do with alphabetical order, but today when I got on there, you know, you, you have that list of like the 10 most looked up words at this moment, except that it flips all the time. It's like one of those boards at a train station, you know, that flips. And so it flips like, I don't know, it's every 30 seconds or 60 seconds. Anyway, when I got on there, the number 10 word being looked up was love. And I thought, are we having like some kind of extraterrestrial invasion or something? And they're like, what is this earth love? We have to, or like guys are having fights with their girlfriends. You don't love me. Oh yeah. Let's look up love at Merriam-Webster. Let's see whether I love you or not. Um, but I, Peter, I want to know, are there still arguments about how to alphabetize? I mean, do you sometimes, uh, does the staff of Merriam-Webster go, no, that's not how you do it because there's a hyphen there. And then there's the Z that comes after the hyphen. And so, I mean, are, are there ways in which this is just not completely settled at this point? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for example, we are about to enter a verb that is spelled with the symbol of the ampersand uh, <laughs> that you could say in a sentence, don't at me. Yeah. And where do you put that alphabetically? <laughs> um, or just the fact that most copy editors would write 86, as in let's 86 that meal. Uh, we would normally write that uh, out or it could be spelled as two numerals. Um, and where would that fall in the dictionary? And in the case of the at symbol, if it were a print dictionary, uh, do you know where it would go? <laughs> Me? Yeah. Well, do we I would know? put it, I think we're, we're going to put it uh, where uh, right after the entries that are spelled with the letters A-T. Oh. Uh, because that is how we say the, the that particular symbol, even though we could say the ampersand is the name of the symbol, but the verb is pronounced at. So um, Nicholson Baker, you know, unless we are brought up in some kind of religious organization where chanting just kind of goes on all the time about <laughs> all numbers, all, all, all manner of subjects, you know, I mean, I feel like the alphabet might be one of the first things we sort of comprehensively learn. And we kind of do, as you pointed out, learn it by chanting. Yeah, I think it's it's that exciting moment when you you uh, you learn that you don't don't sort the letters the way you sort, let's say, Halloween candy by shape or 
um, or the screws and nails in a bowl. You know, you, there, there, there are all these other systems that as a kid you kind of come up with. But then they, then they tell you, we're going to give you this secret mystical thing that you may not fully understand. And it's going to involve a song. And, and you sing this song. And I remember, I remember learning the song and thinking, I have no idea why I'm singing this, but I, I feel that I've entered a higher plane of existence. <laughs> and, and then I thought, my, I asked my mother, why? What, but what about the LMNOP? Why are they all squeezed together? Don't they get their time in the sun? You know? And then why do we pause so long on the S? I mean, but then you understand, well, because so many words begin with S, there's always this logic. So it's a, it's a beautiful, um, a beautiful, but not naturally (laughs) occurring kind of thing that you learn when you're, when you're a kid. And, and, and I felt it all the rest of my life. I really loved the, 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 the moment when I was taught how to use a dictionary I uh, just loved that, that feeling of seeing the little letters indented in the side of the thick thing and thinking I could climb up that rock cliff face with those ABCs and DEFs. And... Well, I'm being told by our um, senior producer, Betsy Kaplan, that her kids thought there was a word spelled E-L-E-M-E-N-O when they were very little. Uh, L-M-N-O. Um, yeah, and... Yeah. Okay. So a common misconception. So Judith, I want to get back to this whole idea of when we just started deciding as a Western civilization to, uh, to alphabetize or to put things in alphabetical order. I've now lost track of the name and the instance in my head, but in your book, there's a mention of some French guy, I think, who has to apologize to the king (laughs) because he's decided to put things in alphabetical order. Tell us that story. Alphabetical order sort of gets reinvented or rediscovered um, time after time because everybody thinks it's not the best system, that other systems are better. And then they sort of default to the alphabetical system because ultimately it's the most pragmatic. As I say, you don't need to know anything. And so in the 16th century, the first um, bibliography um, that was written in French rather than in Latin um, was compiled by this this man, um, the Sieur de la Maine, who um, dedicated it to the king, um, but apologized because he had put it in alphabetical order. Um, not in hierarchical order, not with the books by the most important people at the front. And as he said, this might mean that the servant comes before the master or the children before their parents. In other words, it upends social hierarchy. And he felt the need to apologize for this. And he was eventually beheaded too. So no, he wasn't. He wasn't. He was, he, <laughs> not he, to he my was, knowledge. No, no. Uh, but no, he just said like, not saying you guys aren't more important than the other guys. No one's saying that. This just happens to be uh, in a- alphabetical order. Well, you know, Judith, the book also, as others have pointed out, is really also a book about the retrieval of information. How do you find stuff, right? I mean, this is w- one of those big questions. Um, and, uh, and, and so maybe we should just talk a little bit uh, about how you find stuff. Well, one of the, one of the many, many fascinating side road revelations in this book is that 
the Melville Dewey, the person responsible for the Dewey Decimal System, was uh, like a really horrible person. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so t- cause I think Nicholson and I are going to have some things that we need to say about the Dewey Decimal System and, and about that kind of system in general. But just give us a sense about like what was what kinds of horribleness crept from the person of Melville Dewey into the Dewey Decimal System. Well, the the, the real I was going to say the real problem with Dewey, it's not true. There were many real problems with Dewey. Um, one was the really stupid way he decided to spell his first name, which offends me deeply, um, <laughs> that he took off the last L-E. I mean, really, it's what you do when you're 12. Um, sorry, I digress. Um, Melville Dewey was hired by Amherst College, from which he had just graduated as a young man in his 20s, to create a catalog for them. Um, And Melville Dewey really didn't know anything at that point about cataloging. And so he came up with this system of um, dividing the world up into categories and giving them numbers. And then each successive set of decimal points after a group of numbers refines the category. So if, for example, you have the natural sciences, those are the 500s in his system. Um, 590 would be zoology, um, and then you go insects or butterflies and so on into smaller and smaller groups, which is fabulous. No problem at all there. But of course, what happened is he's this 20-year-old in um, Amherst, Massachusetts in, I think, the 1870s. He doesn't really know very much about the world. So, for example, religion is given the 200s in his system. Um, But 200 to 289 is Christianity. Um, And all of Islam is just given 297. I mean, he just, you know, as far as he is concerned, the belly button of the universe is Amherst, Massachusetts, and people like him. I I think the burden is on us to prove him wrong. But, but, you know, Nicholson, just apropos of that, we should say, just in the area of knowledge retrieval, that... I, and I just have read enough of your work to know how your mind works, I think, and, and that it works in a somewhat similar way to mine. So the joy of either that system or the Library of Congress system or so, is is adjacency and kind of fuzzy logic. In other words, if I'm using Merriam-Webster to look up uh, baboons, I'm not particularly interested in Babylonians or babushkas or anything else I might find there. But, you know, in a library system, you can be looking for a book whose existence you don't even know about. You just know that on these particular two shelves, I am likely to run into more books than the one or two books I looked up that led me there. Am I making sense? And if so, can you translate it so that other people will know what I'm talking about? Well, you're making sense to me. I I, I love the, the dictionary feeling, which is that you that you homing in on the word xylophone and you end up with the odd words that are on either side it's one of those beautiful lyrical moments that and it's a way of expanding outward unexpectedly so there's that kind of delightful chance meeting with words but then with the the Melville Dewey the Dewey decimal system I liked as a kid because the public library was like that and you 
basically, I like any system. I mean, any system serves up the universe of books and words and ideas slightly differently. So it's always good to triangulate or quadrilangulate, if that's the word, and and you, and come at things from different angles because you're going to find things. So when you're searching for um, 20th century novels in the Library of Congress ordering system, which everyone thinks is you know better, but is is actually sort of it has its own weaknesses. Uh, that the Dewey system maybe doesn't have is going to give you slightly different, a slightly different little mini universe of books. So, um, and yet, and this is what is hurts me sort of, or makes me try is that it's all starting to crumble in a way because almost all the searching that I do now is text strings. And, right. and we all do this. It's, and it's, it's just sort of, when you want to look up um, brilliant novels about xylophones, you just type in brilliant novels about xylophones. I mean, it's just, <laughs> in some ways, it all, all of this uh, mystical knowledge that we had of the paths that you had to go through, uh, um, there, there's this great shortcut. that, and I, and I love the shortcut, and I use it all the time. Right, and we're gonna we'll we'll come back to that in the third yeah. section of our show. But I just want to sort of there's so many interesting little side trips here in this conversation. And Peter, one of the things that I don't think I had ever heard of or knew anything about before we started preparing for this show is the so-called backward uh, index, uh, which was the project of a man I think named Gove. Tell tell us about this. Yeah, I mean, alphabetical order is paramount. There's a couple of quick anecdotes about dictionaries and alphabetical order. First of all, we don't usually write the dictionary in alphabetical order. A couple of reasons for that. Um, people get a a afraid that the reviewers of a new dictionary will look at the letter A, for example, and judge the rest of the book. And often it's a long project and you make a lot of mistakes along the way. So typically dictionaries start in the middle. <laughs> so we, we can learn uh, uh, the style and, and the technique and, and then uh, get around to A when we've, we're, we're more ready for it. The other thing is, of course, uh, often editors are specialized. So a, a, a one group or batch of entries will be done by a specialist in uh, art history or music uh, or uh, th theology or politics. And so it makes sense to organize in these other ways that are not alphabetical. But there was one question that, 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 that we wanted to answer, that our forebears wanted to answer, uh, or maybe a group of questions. And that was uh, how to uh, find words uh, uh, that are very much alike or or families of words, uh, but that don't begin with the same letter. And the solution that was found in our office uh, was to literally make an index of three by five cards uh, of every single head word, boldface word in the dictionary, typed in uh, capital letters backwards, and then below it typed in forwards. So that we call it now the backward index. Uh, and it is about 315,000 slips uh, it's basically the entire unabridged dictionary typed backwards, and it allows us to find funny things. I mean, you can see how many 
sciences end in ology or how many different kind of ponies there are. There's the Shetland pony uh, and the Welsh pony. And these are things that you can only see if you're looking backwards. And of course, it helps also with uh, making a rhyming dictionary, which was done as well. Now, this is a, it's now an artifact, just like Nicholson Baker just said. I mean, to a certain extent, the serendipity of research is something that we've lost with digital search. But clearly, this uh, system, this index, which was begun in the 1940s, and they contributed until into the 1970s, uh, this was the work of people who desperately wanted digital search. All right, we're going, but couldn't have it, yes. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break here. We're talking about alphabetical order and all kinds of ways in which information retrieval is tied in to the notion of alphabetical order. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll tell you more. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're talking about alphabetical order with Judith Flanders, uh, the author of A Place for Everything, The Cur Curious History of Alphabetical Order, and also with Nicholson Baker, author of 17 books, and the kind of person who thinks and writes about this kind of question. Uh, his most recent book is Baseless, My Se Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act. Peter Sokolowski is with us, of course, lexicographer, editor-at-large at, at Merriam-Webster, co-host of the podcast Word Matters. So, Judith Flanders, we should talk a little bit about why, why and when, I guess, uh, retrieval uh, of information becomes even more important. And one of the things that you point at uh, is a moment in, in Western Europe, maybe between 1,000 and 1,400, where there's just a lot more documents. You can't just reach behind you and pull some scroll down and you already know what it is, right? So they have to start figuring out how are we going to do this so we can look up a court record or something, uh, you know, relatively easily. So, so what do they do about that? Well, of course, one of the things is that court records or records, deeds, charters, wills um, need to become important. And in the um, uh, earlier period, what you had was um, in Britain and in a lot of other places as well, you had a legal system where the spoken word is the document. There is nothing except what is spoken and what you remember. Charters, deeds, all of these things were kind of ceremonial documents. They didn't really matter legally. And so what you did was you went into court, um, if it was, say, a land dispute, you would go into court and you would swear that your father had told you that his father had told him that Farmer Brown's land stopped at that tree, not at the road. And that was the testimony. That was what mattered. And gradually through the 12th, 13th, 14th century, um, the written documents become what is important and replace the legal requirement of memory. And once the documents become important, of course, what happens is you have to be able to find them. Right. And that's when one of the earliest 
organizational shifts begins to take place, although at that stage, they're not really using the alphabet. They're using uh, subject categories and chronology time. But but even to do that kind of stuff, I mean, ultimately, there has to be standardization of spelling. Um, mm -hmm. You have to have sort of agreements about things. So I'm assuming that's the beginning of the time when it starts to make a difference, whether you spell it verbena or verbena. Uh, you, you can't just have everybody using their own spelling systems. Well, that, of course, is, Peter will tell you more, that is the beginning of um, dictionary requirements, you know, the, the Latin dictionaries of the period. Do you spell um, hyena with an H or a Y? Um, very much open, open for grabs. So this all comes very slowly through the Middle Ages. And really, it, it's the 14th century before there is any beginning of systematization, uh, particularly in Latin, um, which what, were what the early dictionaries in Europe were. All right. So um, I want to talk about sort of organizing and listing and, and how it kind of makes things real. You know, Nicholson Baker, there's sort of a moment, there's a moment uh, in the uh, great art film, The Jerk uh, by Steve Martin, where mm -hmm. his very naive character is like running down the street in a state of ecstasy. And it turns out it's because he's in the phone book, you know, <laughs> that he's like, yeah. he's really arrived. His name is printed somewhere. It's in the phone book. But I think, you know, there is some truth. There is a behind the comedy of that. There's some truth, right? That one of the ways that we make ourselves real in the world and make the real word world real to us is when we appear in lists of things or we have lists of things that make us at least have the illusion that we know what's going on. Uh, react to that. Well, I remember looking looking my family name up in the phone book. And the nice thing was they were it was in capital letters. So you felt that you know, you were on a, some sort of tiny marquee. You know, there's our name. There we are. And a little, little sort of abbreviated address. We're 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 part of this giant textual kind of flow of knowledge. I certainly felt that, and I, um, I even in college, I felt that um, there was a special room. It was a English reading room that. Um, was filled with these books that that Judith beautifully writes about concordances, uh, concordances to the Bible were, were, were what she was writing about. But this was concordance concordances to all the poets. So it was all of the poets' words, but arranged not in the poems themselves, but in by word word order. So all the times that they used feather. Are there, you know, in, in, in with the with the lines, and I this this room had this particular power for me, and I ended up actually writing a whole book on the use of the word brain and Emily Dickinson and other writers because I could look it up in these books in alphabetical order. It was just this brilliant thing, and I kept dreaming that there would be a concordance to all poetry ever published. You know, that there would be this this would someday maybe happen. This gigantic book. 
Um, I, so I want to mention two things uh, while we're on both of those subjects. One of them is that uh, there used to be a lot of gaming of, of the lists in the phone books. Um, so, you know, famously because you'd want to be AAAA, Acme, whatever you are. Uh, yeah. So you'd go first. But there also was, uh, and I, I tracked this down because I know I, I had read it somewhere. In the 1950s, there was a group of bachelors. I think they were living in Birmingham, Alabama. But anyway, their phone listing was Zeke. ZZPT, however you would pronounce that last name. So if they were at a party and they wanted to, you know, invite some girl back to their, to call them later or something, they would say it's just the last name in the phone book. They just made sure they had the last name in the phone book, no matter what it was. <laughs> yeah. But Judith, we, Judith, you should quickly mention, because we are doing this show in Connecticut, uh, you should mention George Coy, because Connecticut is the cradle of so many things. It's, probably it's we're the probably home. the cradle, cradle of cradle making, for all I know. The, the, but we're definitely the cradle of the phone book. Oh, of Mr. Coy. Well, not so much the – he was the creator of the phone book in some ways, but of the switchboard, mm -hmm. which is what necessitated a phone book. Um, in When phones were first invented, they came in pairs. So I would own one half of the pair and you would own the other, and we were the only people who could speak to each other. And what Coy did was he invented this thing called the switchboard and you signed up, you, you became a subscriber and they would kind of patch you through to other people. So it made it possible to call more than just your pair. And so originally Coy had a list of his subscribers. He had 21 subscribers to his service and these people didn't necessarily know each other. They weren't connected anymore. And as far as we know, it has not survived, unfortunately. Um, the list um, was just in any old order, probably the order they signed up in. Um, but gradually, of course, as it became longer and longer, it had to get put in an order. And of course, ultimately, people had to get something very, very modern a telephone number because yes. before that you would call up the switchboard and you would say put me through to nicholson baker and they would <laughs> you can still try that i'm not sure how, how it'll work but yes we do claim here in connecticut that uh, george coy eventually did publish the first phone book because he had enough people that you had to have uh, a list of all of them uh, anyway peter sokolowski i know you kind of had a question you wanted to uh, ask judith uh, about what kind of the arbitrariness uh, of alphabetical order well, you know, listing makes things real. That's what you just said. I love that idea, this this basic premise that writing was a bureaucratic tool uh, that we sort of needed before we could get to anything else. And and uh, Judith writes so, so beautifully about the early dictionaries around the time of Shakespeare uh, and that they would actually have to give a kind of user's manual uh, and Judith, do you want to explain that? <laughs> I just think it's one of the great anecdotes in that book because we take alphabetical order for granted, and yet we can see that only 400 years ago that wasn't true. Well, this was the fascinating thing to me was how many times alphabetical order had to be re-explained and over how many centuries it had to be re-explained. And as Peter says, the, what, what, what is called um, rather unattractively, the first English non-translating dictionary, which means obviously the first English English dictionary, um, which was published, I think off the top of my head, I can't remember, I think 1601. 
yeah, 1604, um, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 1604. Um, had this um, preamble to it, which explained to the puzzled reader, if the word you search begins with an A, look at the beginning of the book. If it begins with an M, look in the middle of the book. And so, uh, you know, th there was just no idea that the readers would know to do this. Yeah, we may be heading in that direction again, uh, and that might even be part of what we talk about in the final section here. I just want to quickly say, uh, for those of you who think, oh, well, you know, how big a deal is this these days? I'll tell you how dire this can be. Every year, the World Meteorological Organization sets a total of 21 alphabetical names for each hurricane season, with each name used only once every six years. Um, so, and they, they never have Q, U, X, Y, or Z, because there aren't enough names. So this past year, 2020, they got to Wilfred, which was the last planned storm name, and there were still storms. And they had to go to Greek letters because they'd run out of the alphabetical storm titles. So they, they so, should they should have done the way they do it with with theaters, you know, double A. Um, <laughs> you know, the next one could be Storm Aardvark. Right. <laughs> uh, well, they didn't think of that. They're meteorologists, not lexicographers <laughs> or authors or historians. All right, so we have to take a quick break. We're gonna we're gonna come back after this. All right. This is one of these shows I wish I could be a guest on because like because <laughs> Nicholas, Nicholas was talking about concordances, which is something that Judith writes a lot about in her book. Uh, and uh, particularly biblical concordances are the big thing, because one of the things they wanted to know right away once they figured out all this retrieval stuff is like, how can we figure out the Bible even better? Uh, where I used to work at the Hartford Current, America's oldest continuously published newspaper, in the back in this kind of musty, dusty library was a copy of Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. I believe I was the only person ever to use it, uh, and I looked up things in it all the time. But I was that Strong's Exhaustive Concordance was a kind of deliberately <laughs> intimidating title. Before we have to go any further, I have to make, do some thank yous. Uh, Betsy Kaplan's name comes first, first in the alphabet, uh, ahead of Cat Pastors. Betsy Kaplan, the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, producer of this episode. Kat Pastor uh, is the person in the studio doing the producing that is done there. She's producing the show right up onto the air. So uh, thanks to uh, both of them uh, and to you for listening today. We're with Judith Flanders. Uh, her new book is A Place for Everything, The Curious History of Alphabetical Order, uh, with Nicholson Baker, uh, base, uh, the author most recently, among his 17 books, of Baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act. Peter Sokolowski is lexicographer, editor-at-large at, at Merriam-Webster, co-host of the podcast Podcast Word Matters, and the author of a chapter in The Whole World in a Book. So, you know, Nicholson Baker, as Judith Flanders was talking at the end of the last segment and talking about these pr 
prompted by Peter talking about these, you know, kind of labored explanations <laughs> of how to look something up in a dictionary at certain times in the history of dictionaries. And yeah, if it begins with M, you might want to kind of go towards the middle there. I mean, your point earlier was we're almost drifting towards that. You know, Walter Tevis had that book Mockingbird about like people who just they don't know how to read anymore in the, in the future. They just like this, like five people left who know how to read. Well, I mean, the number of people who might be comfortable looking up something in an alphabetical list. I, you're sort of suggesting I, we're not at that point yet, but it's, there's a kind of atrophy that we're drifting towards. Well, I don't, and I don't know if it's if it's a terrible thing or not. I was a substitute teacher for a while, and a lot of the kids didn't know the alphabet. They didn't know how to say it, but they, but there's different. It's you can sing it, but actually knowing how to use it in the sense of finding something in alphabetical order they didn't know how to do. And we're talking, you know, middle elementary school into um, middle school, really. And um, I think a lot of kids now don't know alphabetical order, don't understand that it is this sort of miraculous pry bar that allows you to get into things. And it's not, a, but I don't think it's necessarily a problem. I think for, it's, it's something that the people who can can use it know that an index to a book is going to allow you to find certain things in the book that a text string search won't necessarily find. So it's still there. It's still possible to use these ancient machines of retrieval. But, but a text string searching is incredibly powerful and wonderful. And I've, I mean, think of... How many things you can find in searching in, say, PubMed, which is the, the direct database of scientific papers, by looking for particular names of subspecies of, of virus or something. I just did this a lot in writing a piece about the origins of, of the coronavirus. Um, I couldn't have done it without text string searching. Well, I mean, the alternative probably would have been to have this accretion, tremendous accretion of knowledge, you know, uh, which is the the thing also that might be kind of disappearing. We can sort of instantly specialize in things we don't know anything about. So, um, Peter, I'm also wondering whether the organizing structure behind Merriam-Webster is changing, is evolving uh, with technology. And if, if so, is it less uh, alphabetizing dependent? Well, it certainly is. I mean, we, we just this week, in fact, just uh, I think yesterday, uh, we relaunched kind of an, a redesign for our subscription unabridged dictionary in which we put the alphabetical browsing sections right at the top so you can click on any letter and kind of kind of roam around in a way like we used to that serendipity of opening a dictionary up and, and, and not looking for Babylon, looking for baboon, but nevertheless, you know, maybe encountering something that you weren't looking for. But there's something else about alphabetical order, which is, of course, fundamentally, it's completely arbitrary. Uh, and yet what isn't arbitrary in terms of the development of English is chronological order. And uh, because we put the dates of first known use at each of our dictionary entries, you can click a button on our website and flip the dictionary into chronological order as opposed to alphabetical order. And I just think that's just a kind of a magical way to explore. If we take the word xylophone that Nich Nicholson Baker just used, um, 1866 is its first known use, but I see other words from 1866 like calorie, centrifuge, civil disobedience, 
and anti-abortion, all from 1866. So it gives you a, a snapshot of the culture and the technology of a certain moment in time that required new words. See, if Nicholson Baker did not know prior to this that that feature existed, you have just ruined like two weeks of his life because he's not going to do anything <laughs> None else. None of us may ever do anything again. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> so Judith, Judith, is, Judith, Judith Flanders, is digital culture necessarily the enemy of the alphabetizing-oriented ordering systems that you chronicle uh, so beautifully in, in your book? Are these two uh, trains on the same track heading for a collision? I don't know that it's the enemy. It may, you know, we, we didn't really use alphabetical order much until the 14th century. It may be that in a hundred years, they'll look back and say, oh, it was a passing phase. It was an eighth century passing phase, but it was a passing phase. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, if you are looking up, um, if you're trying to look up, let me think of something, somebody with a, uh, if you're trying to look up Shoeless Joe Jackson on Wikipedia mm -hmm. and you can't remember his first name, so all you know is a baseball player named Jackson, um, you go to Wikipedia, you type in Jackson, it will bring up places and then it will bring up people. And then the names of the people will be in alphabetical order. All the people named Jackson will still be in alphabetical order online. Right. That, that's exactly right. And the, Wikipedia uses alphabetical order a lot more than people realize, you know, because, yeah, a lot of things are just lists that they do. For example, I pulled up one today to get ready for the show. So they have a, a list uh, of hard rock musicians. And in fact, there are so many of them that they've broken it up into A through M and L through Z to make it less mm -hmm. unwieldy. Uh, so at that point, it becomes important to know that Five Finger Death Punch is listed ahead of five hog hat uh, because of alphabetical order. So yeah, it's well, not- Well, I would have done it for preference. <laughs> you would have done it how? Yeah, just because I, you know, yeah. which, which which groups are my favorites. Right. So, you know, um, Nicholson Baker, one of the things that I think also has come to challenge us is, um, and I know that you, you and I have both edited Wikipedia articles, and I, I kind of insist when I'm teaching that my students try to do it because they should at least understand how the thing works if they're going to rely on it so much. But I think there's another thing that uh, is sort of a, I don't know, a way of living. So there's a, a British comedian, Judith may know him, his name is Frank Skinner, uh, and uh, he's very smart and very literate. And he has a rule, and his rule is if you know something but can't mentally retrieve it, at a given moment. You are not allowed to Google it. You are not allowed to Wikipedia it. You have to come up with it on your own. Um, and, and it's a rule that I break all the time, but I'm now keenly aware that I'm breaking it. Um, but, but you know what I'm, I'm saying here? There's a way in which we can either give in completely to the ease of text strings, or we can fight back a little bit in order to conserve our own capacities. Maybe uh, you could talk about that for a minute or two. Me? Well, um, I, I don't know. I, there's a moment in every dinner party where everyone is fumbling with their phone trying to look up the name that somebody was trying to remember. And I kind of like the moment. I don't know. I am now frightened by this guy because I think it's, I've, I've felt, you know, I know my memory is different now. I, and I think everybody's memory is different because things are instantaneously retrievable. You, if, you, if you can't remember the particular proper name, you can even type in something like that guy that wore the green hat on his head and 
dance down Fifth Avenue on Sunday, and it will it it will give it to you because of of Google's algorithmic uh, memory of other people's clickings and stuff. So that is changing us, um, and and necessarily so because we have so much more to trawl through. We don't just have the songs that are in the store today. We have the entire library of all streamable songs. So it's just, in some ways, this is what we have to do, is, is have quicker methods of finding specific hits through kind of foggy logic and, and, and those other <laughs> methods, I think. And, and it's, the, it's not without its serendipities, too. I mean, today, I, had to, I broke the Skinner rule. I was trying to remember the name Richard Brinsley Sheridan, uh, who was an 18th century playwright, and I couldn't think of it, but I could think of The Rivals, which is the play that has Mrs. Malaprop in it. And so, so I finally gave up, and I just Googled that. But by Googling that, I w- wound up at Wikipedia, where I discovered that there was an uh, episode of the like 1950s television Western, Maverick, that was based on The Rivals and gave Richard, Richard Brinsley Sheridan credit for the fact that they were using his idea for an episode of this cowboy series with James Garner <laughs> Maverick. I thought, okay, so that was worth it. That was just knowing yeah. something that stupid uh, is actually worth it to me. Uh, all right. And, and I should say, there are so many weird and wonderful things in Judith Flanders' book. There's no way in the world we could possibly convey them to you. And anyway, she doesn't want us to. She wants you to get the book and read it. And you'll find out that there's like five different brothers who were all saints. <laughs> It doesn't even seem, it seems, it seems like, the, you know, Jared Kushner or something. Uh, anyway, so many things to learn from, from her book, uh, from, which is, by the way, called A Place for Everything, The Curious History of Alphabetical Order, uh, from Merriam-Webster's wonderful site, which Peter Sokolowski does such a great job with, and from all the books of Nicholson Baker. So thanks uh, to all three of you. Uh, you are my dream panel for this particular topic. And uh, thanks to you for listening and to Betsy Kaplan and Kat Pastor uh, for making the whole thing real. I gotta find her and tell her I don't want our love to end So I'm reading that Tulsa telephone book again